0: Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. You may be seated, and kids are now dismissed to go back to their classrooms, and I want to give a quick announcement about the end of this message. Uh, We are going to be doing communion. We'll be taking communion after this message today. And uh, Alex Titchener, one of the members of our shepherd team, will be leading us in that. But I want you to know, if you have kids, we will we, we'll no longer be serving communion in the classrooms. We will not be serving communion in the classrooms to the kids. We want that to be a decision that you make as a family and that you can determine if you feel like your child is ready to take communion with you or not. So um, when we get to that time when, when Alex comes up here to lead us in communion, feel free, if you want your kid to take communion with you, to sneak back and grab them out of the classroom. We won't be serving it in the classroom, teachers, and you can bring your child with you and enjoy communion together as a family, if you would like to. If you want them to remain back in the classrooms, you are free to allow them to remain back in the classrooms. All right, we're talking about different characters today. Uh, well, we've been in the past few weeks, different characters around the Christmas story and highlighting different characters around the uh, the nativity scene of Jesus. And today we're going to talk about someone named Simeon. And we can assume that Simeon was an older guy uh, because when he finally holds Jesus in his arms and he looks down at Jesus, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And it doesn't say specifically that he is an older person, but we can assume that he has been faithful for a long time. He's not a high priest. He doesn't have an official role in the temple. He is just a lay person. He's just a person who's been faithfully looking for Jesus. And after waiting for most of his life, he gets to hold salvation itself in his arms. And he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Well, few weeks ago when I talked about Zachariah and Elizabeth, um, they were another character that were characters that were around this nativity scene of Jesus, and they were the parents of John the Baptist. So they were involved in this story on the peripheral level. They were parents of John the Baptist, and it says that both were advanced in years. That's Luke 1-7. Both were advanced in years. So again, another older couple surrounding this birth of Jesus narrative next week we're going to look at Anna someone who isn't discussed a lot in scripture but a very important presence in this scene and again scripture says she was advanced in years now scripture doesn't just throw in arbitrary irrelevant random facts and details There's always a reason when it includes anything. And it's interesting that as we learn together about the birth of Jesus, we see that his birth is surrounded by people who are in their twilight years older folks who have been, um, who could have helped the religious leaders of that day who missed Jesus when he arrived. Older folks who had been looking for him, waiting for him, praying for him for decades of their lives and who saw him. If the religious leaders would have just had ears to hear from them, they could have pointed them to the Messiah. But unfortunately, their voices must not have been given much consideration by the religious leaders. The church in America seems to be doing a decent job at leveraging the gifts and the potentials of youth. Um, There's a lot of good that we we get from young people, young families, young singles, kids, teenagers. There's a lot of good that we get. Uh, Zeal. There's a youthful energy. A youthful enthusiasm, a youthful kind of idealism that's there, a passion that kind of, you know, as you get older, that, that passion and energy just seems to dim down a little bit. And a lot of churches are built and designed specifically to, to reach younger people. And what happens when you do that is we miss out on the church's most precious commodity, the wisdom of the older generations And here we see in this narrative that surrounding this infant, this baby, Jesus, are older folks who have been looking for him. What's the danger of youthifying a church? You end up dumbing it down, don't you? I think the church in the United States, if you're reading the writing on the law, the, the wall, if you're if you're paying attention to what's happening, the church is paying dearly for this. The church in the United States, because we are neglecting the saints among us who have much value to add to us, the churches are less fruitful, less mature, we're lacking dimension, we're lacking perspective, we're lacking stability, the levels of communal wisdom in the church of the United States has dropped significantly because we're neglecting the saints, the older saints among us. And it's not just in the birth narrative we see this as a highlight, as an emphasis in Scripture. This is also in Titus 2, 2 through 5. It says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good so trained the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled pure working at home kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of god may not be reviled scripture makes a point to say that when you gather as a church the older wiser saints among you are to teach in very practical ways life how life works best in the kingdom to the younger generations so my counsel before we even jump into this passage is if you are younger that you would seek out the older saints of this church with great respect and gratitude and to say can I get some time with you Can I have some coffee with you? Can I grab lunch with you? And spend 20 minutes preparing for that coffee, that lunch. Spend time actually prayerfully. What can I learn from this person? I know there's so much that I can learn. Help me to see through kind of my own pride and my youthful arrogance and and see how I can learn and and grow from the wisdom that you've given this, this older saint. And the Lord saints at Southside, i can only say that you have a ton to offer the rest of us we have a lot to learn don't check out keep showing up keep coming around and when you have opportunity to share your wisdom that you've learned over the years with all of us that's the prologue to this passage now we're going to actually get into the meat of the passage it's luke chapter 2 if you have your scripture and you want to open up to Luke chapter two. Otherwise, you're free to just listen along. It's okay if you don't have your Bible with you. But if you do, I would encourage you keep writing in it, keep underlining, keep writing in the margins of your Bible and take notes. Luke chapter two, we're going to begin with verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What two words does it use to describe Simeon? Righteous and devout. Underline those two words, or circle those two words if, you're, if you have your Bible open in front of you. Those are very important words because God can do a ton with a person who is righteous and and devout. Righteous is an internal reality given to us by grace. It's an internal reality given to us by grace. And we receive that through putting our faith in Christ. God changes who we are at the internal level. So righteousness is not something that we attain to or earn or act into. It's a gift given to us. So self-righteousness means that you're trying to be righteous in your own strength and you either end up hiding what's really true about you or becoming very arrogant. Self-righteousness, you're projecting a version of yourself that's not real. You're pretending like you're spiritual or religious when you're not really on the inside. That's what self-righteousness, but true righteousness is an internal reality given to us by grace through faith in Christ. Devout is the outward conscientious obedience to Christ. If I'm righteous, God made me good from the inside out. If I'm devout, I'm expressing that goodness through acts of service and love to others. I'm conscientious about obeying God. But Notice it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. That is huge because that's actually what enabled Simeon to be righteous and devout. Without the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have been able to be righteous and devout. Nobody is righteous and devout apart from the empowering presence of Christ. You can't be. You know, the Spirit is what gives us the desire to. To walk with christ to be obedient to him you can't you don't even have that desire apart from him so what's the proper response when you've done something good when you've done something noble when you've done something loving when you've done something generous when you've been patient or kind the proper response is to say wow that was not me that's not what i'm capable of apart from you obviously you your spirit is at work in me And you enabled me to deny myself that temptation. You enabled me to be generous. You enabled me to be kind. So you get all the credit. Thank you for being at work in me in that way. Because it's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us to obey God. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2.13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which means if you even have the desire to do something obedient and good, it's God at work in you to do that. To be righteous and devout means that the Holy Spirit is working in you, enabling you to be righteous and devout. That's why here we see in the very same sentence that says that he was righteous and devout, the very same sentence that says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26 And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. How exactly the Holy Spirit revealed that to him, I have no idea. But we do know that it aligns with the job description of the Holy Spirit. Because one of the things the Holy Spirit is supposed to do, one of the main things on his job description is point people to Jesus. That's his job. The Holy Spirit has been called the shy member of the Trinity, He's not trying to draw and make a show of himself. He's pointing to Jesus as the Redeemer and King and Savior of the world. I took a a seminary class at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida once. And if you've ever seen Coral Ridge, it's got this gorgeous white steeple, this really tall. It's absolutely beautiful, stunning. It's got a cross on the top of it and there's this huge spotlight. I mean, it looks nice during the day, but at night it's incredible because it's lit up by this enormous spotlight. So I was taking my class there, the professor said, the Holy Spirit is like that spotlight. And that steeple with the cross at the top represents Jesus. We don't walk up to the spotlight and say, Wow, look at how amazing that spotlight looks. Now, we have to be a little bit careful because the Holy Spirit is still a member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is still God. We believe that the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all three members of the Trinity that is God. So we believe that that spotlight is God there, but its job, it's lighting up, it's illuminating Christ. It's pointing and directing people to Jesus. That's its primary responsibility. And so somehow the Spirit personally communicated to Simeon in this passage that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Spirit was communicating to him, I'm going to get you to him. You're going to get to see him. You're going to get to hold salvation itself, himself, in your arms. We don't know how he communicated that. We just know that he did. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit. There's a the Spirit again, very, very active in this whole narrative. He came into this in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law again notice God's sovereign work and timing behind the scenes at the exact same time that the spirit led Simeon into the temple who else was going in the temple. Joseph and Mary and Jesus to do what was according to the religious custom of that time. There was a dedication, a thing that they had to do with the high priest to dedicate this child to God. That's what they were doing and at that same time, Simeon was being led by the Spirit into the temple. And there was probably this sense of anticipation. You're about to see him. You're about to see the Messiah, the anointed one who has come to take away the sins of the world. Remember from last week, I said when God is in it, He leaves no loose ends. When God is working to accomplish something in your life, he will never say, oh, I forgot about that part of it. Oh, I dropped the ball on that. Me, that happens all the time. God, not so much. He covers every base, every aspect of something that he is working to accomplish in this world. Every base is covered. Now, on the other side of this, If Simeon weren't open to the Spirit, he would have never recognized, he would have never been led to, he would have never seen Jesus. The one he'd been waiting for his entire life, he would have missed him. And it's still true for us today that the Spirit is constantly trying to lead us to Jesus. And I can look back at my life now and recognize all throughout my life, that the Spirit was at work trying to lead me on this path to Christ. And for much of the first half of my life, I was stiff-arming God and saying, I'm not interested, not my bag, not my thing. Um, I, can, I can manage on my own. I don't really need a savior. What do I need to be saved from? That was the first half of my life. And I can see how finally, um, what C.S. Lewis calls the great hound from heaven captured and captivated my heart. But he's, wor- he's doing the same thing for all of us. He's doing the same thing for your loved ones. So if by chance you have a loved one who is not yet part of this kingdom family, um, one of the ways that you can pray for them is that they would see where the Spirit is leading them to Jesus and that their eyes would be opened to the Spirit's work and to Him. Verse 28... He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, so he sees Jesus and he receives Jesus and he's he's holding him and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A light for the revelation, for revelation to the Gentiles. One way that scripture describes us before we are part of the kingdom, before we enter by faith in Christ into the kingdom, it describes us as people who are wandering around almost outside of the city lights of the kingdom in the darkness. And Jesus here is the guiding light. That shows us the way back home. Into union with the father into life in the kingdom, and he's not just the en- he's not just the guiding light. He's also the entryway into the kingdom. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So anyone that tries to convince, convince you that there is, Jesus is not the only way to experience this blessed by God type of life, is teaching something that's extremely destructive and actually not true because Jesus is the way. He is the way into the kingdom. He is the way into the family. And Simeon says, you are letting your servant depart in peace. Let's talk about that word peace. It's from a Greek word, I think it's pronounced irene, irene. It's from the verb iro, which means to join together something that has been separated. That's what the word he uses for peace means. Simeon is holding baby Jesus and he says, I can die in peace now because I've been joined back together with God. And the source of that joining back together, the source of that salvation is this child. When we are separated from God, there is an existential angst. I've said that word both ways, angst angst. I finally looked it up and you can say it either way. So I'm going to say angst because that's how I've always said it. But there's an existential angst that that prevents us from experiencing this total, unadulterated, undiluted peace. There's this buzzing anxiety in the background. But when we are united back together with God through Christ, that existential angst begins to lose its power, its force, its strength over us. It begins to dissolve by the power of the gospel. So I thought it'd be helpful to do my best to explain and to give some examples of what that existential angst might look like. I was talking with one of my daughters the other day about that. And, and she said, what is existential? What does that even mean? That means nothing. So I'm going to give some practical things of what existential angst, how that might show up for you. The nagging feeling that everything could fall apart at any moment. That's how most of, people, most of the people in the world live, like the feeling that the other shoe could drop at any moment. It could also be any version of anxiety about finances. It could be the fear of losing a loved one. It could be the overwhelming feeling that your to-do list is infinite and that you'll never have enough time to do everything that you need to do. Does anybody feel, let's just, let's just have a raise of hands. Does anybody, just that one, does anybody feel, raise your hand if you feel like your to-do list is infinite Literally infinite, and you will never have enough time to do that. Does anybody feel that? We have 95% of us feel that way. These are just a few ways that this existential angst shows up in our lives. So, how does Jesus solve these? What does it mean that Jesus is able to give us a peace in the midst of all of this anxiety? Let's just go through them one by one, just as by way of example. The nagging feeling that everything could fall apart at any moment. Do you know that because Christ lives in you in Romans 8:28, nothing can happen to you that God can't use for your good? That's peace. When you're worried that everything could fall apart, there is nothing outside of His power that can happen to you. There is nothing that anyone can do to you. There's nothing that this economy can do to you. There's nothing that your boss can do to you that God can't, because you are part of his kingdom family, turn and spin and manipulate and cover all the ground, all the things around it, and use it for your ultimate good. That's a promise, and that's peace. What about any version of anxiety about finances? The whole world feels angsty about finances right now. This is not a health and wealth church, but I can say that the kingdom economics is is not dependent on world economics. We live in a kingdom outside, above, and beyond this world. And God chooses to communicate to us in Scripture, you're going to be fine. I'm going to take care of you. Because Christ lives in me, Philippians 4.19 says, I can be confident that God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, including your material needs. And we know that because in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, he says, if you're focused on the kingdom, don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about where your next meal is going to come from. I will take care of that. I've got you. You never again, if you believe what scripture says, have to worry about finances. Never. As long as you're being a faithful human being and putting your trust in Christ, you will be taken care of. We are literally freed from worrying about finances. Fear of losing a loved one. Actually, I I just, this just shot to my mind because one of the passages that have has really helped me with this, is not only does God say, don't worry about finances, but be generous. Express your confidence that I will take care of you by being generous to others. This is really dangerous because I don't remember, this isn't my notes, but I think it's Proverbs 11.24. Proverbs 11.24. This is a verse that, for a season of my life, rocked me because I am not a generous person, naturally. I hoard my stuff, I, I do not want to give things away, especially finances, but probably Proverbs 11:24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers one. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. If you, are, if you struggle with me with... Giving generously, financially specifically to people and to things, that's a good verse to memorize because God says, when you release and you give, you can't outgive me. When you free up your stuff and give to others, I will provide peace and blessing and care for you in a way that I wouldn't if you didn't, because that's an expression of faith. And God always rewards faith, always. And this is one of the areas for me, and I'm like, I'm I'm preaching here on this. This is not in my notes, but this was a stronghold for me. And, um, you know, I think I'm I'm trying to discern where to go with this. I want to say that I'm really grateful to this church. You know, I've told you before, I don't look at, I don't think this is a hang-up for us. I don't think this is a hang-up for us. Um, At the end of the year, I write these giving letters, and we send it out with all of your giving statements. I'm pretty sure almost everybody in here probably gives. I've told you before, I don't look at that. I don't want to know. I keep my hands and my eyes away from who gives what. Who gives? Who doesn't? I could not care less because I know I'm taken care of. I know the kingdom's going to be taken care of. I know if God wants Southside to be in existence, it will be in existence. But as I'm writing these end-of-the-year giving letters to tell you how we've used what you've given so generously, you know what my prayer is? It's, a, it's Proverbs 11:24. 24. It's God, would God these people who are giving so generously pour out your blessing into their lives Free them from the anxiety, the angst, the stress of finances. Help them to be a people who, when everybody else is worried about things falling apart, they don't because of your supernatural grace and peace working in and through them. So thank you. You guys got this down. You are a very generous church, and may God bless you for that. These are just a few ways of... God providing for us, of God giving us peace when it doesn't make sense. What about fear of losing a loved one? Because Christ lives in me, death no longer stings. We're promised a reunion of those who've gone before us in Christ. Jesus came to destroy our greatest enemy, and that is death. I remember the first time I was struck by this, that Jesus can actually give peace in a different type of way around around death. I was was in college. I had transferred to Hillsdale College of Michigan, and one of my really close friends, Todd Pfister, um, got cancer, and uh, he was a year younger than me, really, really sweet guy, Amazing guy, believer. Um, we were, he, you know, he'd been getting better, and then he'd get worse, and he'd get better, and then he'd get worse. And one night we were about to have this blizzard, so we were thinking school's gonna be caught off the next day, and our game might be canceled. And my roommate, my best friend at the time, came in and he said, um, "Todd's sister called. She thinks we should go see him tonight." I was like, "What's well, gonna blizzard?" And they live like way out in the country, and you know, it's it be hard to get there. And he said, I think we should go see him. So we got the team and we went to Todd's house, went to his bedroom. They had hospice there. And Todd was like, you know, he couldn't communicate. He couldn't talk with us. It was rough. It was hard. We stayed there for several hours with him. And then, we, and then his parents were like, I think you guys can just watch your head out before it gets too bad. We were all saying goodbye and like joking around and you know, what teenage guys do, trying to make light of it. And one of my friends who's a really, really strong believer who's inviting us to this Bible study and he was kind of evangelizing all of us, he looks at Todd, he gets like right in his face. Todd was a believer and he said, "Um, I'll see you soon. And Todd just, you know, he had that, he kind of grinned and smiled and looked at him and that knowing look like, yeah, see you soon. It's the first time I actually began to wonder if this was real. Because if this is real, then that's real. That's not just some religious nice thing that we say to one another. It is real. And for those of us who have lost a loved one who, or who have a loved one who is sick, a parent who is sick, a sibling who is sick, a friend who is sick, We bank our lives on this, don't we? This existential angst of a looming death has lost its power on us who are in Christ because we get to look forward to reunion. What about the overwhelming feeling that your to-do list is infinite and that you'll never have enough time to do everything you need to do? Guess what? When you're a Christian, When you submit to another sovereign authority, you don't have to deal with the insanity of other people's agendas for your life. You answer to one person. One person makes your agenda, and that's Jesus. And I would encourage you to pray every morning before you get out of bed. A million voices are going to try to tell me how to spend my time today, including mine, and I want to do what you want me to do. What do you want me to do? And let Jesus plan your day for you. The thing underneath all of our existential angst is that apart from Christ, we're only half alive because part of us died when we were separated from God at the beginning of creation. And the only way to be reunited back together with God is through faith in Christ. And if you're here today and you're feeling plagued by angst and restlessness, perhaps it's because you've never received this gift of salvation. You've never experienced Simeon's joy of encountering the Messiah. You've never experienced the wholeness and the completeness and the help and the supernatural peace that only comes from the with Jesus life. There's a, there's a section of this passage left, but you know what? We're going we're to land the plane here. I'm going to allow this to lead us into communion. But what I want us to do is, I, I want to take this opportunity for you to bow your heads and for you to close your eyes. And if you have not experienced the joy of walking in, in everyday life with Christ, if you have not ever experienced this deep-seated thunderbolt of peace that just overwhelms you, it is real. And if you haven't experienced it, it's hard to talk about. It's hard to understand because the Bible says it doesn't make sense. It surpasses all capacity for human beings to talk about it. You have to experience it to know the reality of it. And if you've never experienced that, what I want to do is invite you to pray this prayer after me. Now, I'm starting to get a little bit fired up about the gospel again, which is a really good thing for a a preacher to get excited about the gospel. Um, There's a group of guys from this church, and if you want to receive this email, let me know. But there's a group of guys from this church that are reading through um, a packet of articles called "Introductory Matters on the Gra- uh, on Grace," and it's all about having a laser sharp focus on the power of the gospel. And I don't know why I have this sense of urgency about this lately, but it is there. We're going to talk a little bit more about it in January when I talk about the neighbor aspect of Member Neighbor Guide. Uh, we are going to be proactive about reaching people for the kingdom because if we don't, this place is going to get really boring and you're not going to want to be a part of it and I'm not going to want to be a part of it because when the Spirit breathes fresh life into a church, it's always because people are awakening to the gospel in new ways and new people are coming into the family. So I'm a little bit fired up about it. I'm a little bit excited about it. And if you want to read through that, uh, those packets with us, you can just email and let me know. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.